and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I get an opportunity now to flip the script on Ryan Nobles, one of my very good friends and colleagues. He's usually uh, on one side of the camera asking questions. Now he is answering them. Welcome to the Bakari, the final show of the year, our second season of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Well, what's up, brother? How are you? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, returning the favor. You were one of my first podcast guests back when I had a podcast during the 2016 campaign. So this is a uh, it's fun to be on the other side of the table. So just <laughs> it, go easy on me. <laughs> oh, I got you. No, no, uh, no, no too hard uh, hitting questions. Um, you know, we, we always ask our guests about the arc of their career. And you are a consummate family man, husband, father. Uh, Ryan has like 14, 16 children, something like that. <laughs> only four, uh, only four. Oh. <laughs> Four children. How, by the way, how was how was their holiday? Everything's good. You know, I mean, I'm I'm sure it's the same with you and your family. Uh, the this Omicron variant has just uh, thrown everybody for a loop. Uh, we have this kind of unique situation where, you know, we obviously have the Christmas holiday, but then we have literally everybody aside from my birthdays packed into the same period of time. So my my son's birthday is on November 26th. My youngest son's birthday is on January 14th, and everyone else's birthdays are within that confine. And so uh, just to give you an idea, and I'm sure this is like many of your listeners, we had back-to-back, well, we had birthday parties planned for my two older kids who are less, are five days apart, their birthdays are five days apart uh, on one week. And then uh, a birthday party for my daughter uh, the weekend after. We had to postpone the first birthday because my daughter was a close contact at her school. She never got the virus, but it forced her out of school for 10 days. We ended up doing them on back-to-back weekends. On that Friday, the Saturday, we had the first party. Omicron was kind of, you know, hum, roll, kind of rumbling behind the surface. So we did that largely indoors. And then by the next day, we decided to move the other birthday completely outdoors because it had just skyrocketed, uh, you know, within 24 hours. And so it really just impacted our holiday plans Man. in a big way. Just end up with small groups with just our family, everybody vaccinated and tested. But uh, you know, that's just the way life has been for the last two years. It's just bizarre. I know. We can't I, I seem can't to get even, past this. I can't even remember the pre-COVID world. I, I mean, I, I am tired of unprecedented times. I just want to get back to some precedented times. Like, let's just get back. I, totally to a I mean, you normalcy. are cutting your hair now, which is, I think, you know, that's some mm. some some sense of normalcy, right? Some sense. I'm, I'm going to cut it all <laughs> off in January, though. But uh, we'll, we'll go back. We'll go back to normal. At least I'll look normal. Before we get to the arc of your career, which is usually my first question, just recently we had the passing of. Uh, one of the most influential United States senators um, in American history and probably the most influential elected official out of the great state of Nevada from everybody from Nevada. See, I pronounced it correctly. Yes, talk did. about talk about the legacy of Harry Reid, what he means to uh, Democratic politics, uh, his cutthroatness. I don't know if that's a word, but we'll call it mm-hmm. that and his ability to navigate the legislative process. You know, I, unfortunately, I never had the uh, good fortune of covering him up close. You know, by the time that I'd gotten to Washington, you know, the arc of his career had kind of already passed. But I, I, you know, I think from my personal experience, what I found in covering the 2020 election, especially covering the Democratic primary, and as you know, I covered Bernie Sanders for a year and a half. And just to see when you were interacting with people on these different campaigns, uh, and there's no doubt that Sanders' campaign was heavily influenced by former Reed aides, but it wasn't just Sanders campaign. If you talk to people that worked in the Buttigieg campaign, you talk to people that worked in the Biden campaign, worked for Andy Klobuchar, it was almost impossible to not run into someone who either worked for Harry Reid, had some sort of direct personal connection to Harry Reid, 
uh, viewed him as a mentor. And, and when I say mentor, not from afar, like had his phone number and texted with him uh, and just viewed him as somebody that had a, an incredible influence over their lives. You know, the, the kind of the children uh, of politics that, that Harry Reid was a father to, I think is just remarkable. And, and so many of them now are among the most influential people in, in democratic politics right now. Uh, and, you know, aside from, you know, his kind of humble upbringing and, and the impact that that had on kind of his policymaking, you know, I, I think his legacy is going to be borne out almost like a football coach in that all of his assistants are now running the show here in Washington. And, and I think, you know, more than anything, that speaks to kind of how his memory is going to live on, you know, long past this you know, period of time where he was such a powerful figure in American politics. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. Let's get to you for a second, Ryan. I wanted to touch on that that kind of breaking news, for lack of a better term. But how did you end up where you are? There are a lot of people listening who want to be on TV, who want to be journalists. Did you ever ascribe or believe that you were going to be a TV journalist um, and you're at the Capitol? I remember when you were at, I can't remember the name of our kind of broadcast network. Uh, news Source. News Source. News yeah, Source. I remember when you were at you yep. You and uh, Diane were were uh, working with affiliates, around, taping yep. hits all the time, twenty four seven. So, talk about the arc of your career and how you ended up where you are. Well, I think I had the really good fortune at a young age to know that I wanted to be a broadcaster. You know, I wanted to be a television broadcaster. I initially thought I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. I grew up in a, a really small town uh, in upstate New York, about an hour and a half south of Buffalo. I didn't know anybody that was in this business. You know, all my you know, the people that I aspired to be were people that I didn't know, but that I watched on television. And so, you know, I basically just learned everything that I possibly could about the business at a young age. I did the morning announcements in my high school. You know, I, I every opportunity that I had to, to kind of to do this or be exposed to it at a young age, I took. And then when I got to college, I went to uh, uh, the State University of New York at Brockport, which is a, a small school outside of Rochester. Um, and I worked at the college radio station there. I interned at the local NBC affiliate, basically just did everything I possibly could to get as much professional experience as I could. And then really kind of made a commitment to myself that I was willing to go anywhere or do anything to do this as a craft. Uh, and my, so my first TV job was in Utica, New York, which is, you know, market 169 on the scale of markets, New York being number one. 
Uh, so it was pretty far down that pipeline, but worked at a tremendous NBC affiliate there, WKTV as a sportscaster. And I did that for, a, you know, like two and a half years, covered high school sports, uh, covered, you know, uh, Syracuse basketball, things like that. Uh, but then, uh, you know, as I got into that career, my news director took me aside and said, you know, that he thought my future really could be covering news. Uh, and so uh, my wife, then my girlfriend at the time, she was a newscaster at the same station and they teamed us up as an anchor team. Uh, and that's how I made my transition to news. And my second day anchoring the news was uh, September 11th, 2001. Uh, and so it was just kind of a baptism by fire. You know, I was in Utica, which is three and a half hours away from New York City. I don't want to make it seem by any stretch that I was in the thick of it. But it was, you know, I quickly came to understand just how powerful, you know, uh, covering the news is, especially, you know, around, uh, around such a, an important breaking news event like that. Uh, from there, I worked in Albany. Uh, I actually did run for public office uh, when I was 26 years old in Utica. I ran for the, the state assembly. I'm assuming uh, you lost because you're sitting here with us today. Yeah, exactly. One of the most formative experiences of my life, um, I learned a lot. The biggest thing I learned is that I, I ran as an independent candidate, which I don't recommend if you want to win an election, <laughs> which is I mean, difficult. What, what, what percent of the vote did you get? Let's, let's, let's dig down. And I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. So uh, I ran uh, on uh, the power of ideas was the name of the party that we created, uh, was the only line that I ran on. In New York, you can run on more than one line, which is kind of unique to New York politics. So the incumbent that I was running against, and as you can tell, I'm, I'm trying to like stack the deck here to, to give you all the ifs, ands, and buts is why I didn't win. But uh, the incumbent I ran against was an 11-term incumbent. Um, he had the Republican, conservative, working families, which is really the liberal party. So he had the conservative and liberal party line uh, and the independence party, which is not even really an independent party, but kind of an outgrowth of whichever party is in power in New York. He had all four lines. And then my line was at the very bottom of the ballot. New York uses a full face ballot. So you see every single person that's running for every single office on the same kind of voting machine. And my name was all the way at the bottom of the voting machine, right next to the guy that was running for governor on the marijuana reform line. In 2002, you know, marijuana reform wasn't nearly as, uh, you know, the kind of the fun issue of the day that it is now. Uh, but I ended up, you know, with the help of a lot of dedicated volunteers at that time, uh, getting 38% of the vote, which is, you know, uh, not insignificant. You know, we got 15,000 votes, I think, somewhere in that range. Uh, lost by a large margin by any stretch of the imagination. But man, what an experience it was to kind of understand how politics works from a, a grassroots level of, you know, just the simple things of, of getting on the ballot, how difficult that is. Uh, raising money, you know, you, know, you know, kind of holding your ha hat out and asking people to put money in it uh, because you believed in a cause and, and a reason that you were behind it. Uh, and just, I think, really the difficulty, uh, the thing that I learned more than anything, and I know, Barkari, as a candidate and elected official yourself, you understand this, the difficulty about really putting yourself out there, um, you know, to put your name on a ballot, all of the slings and arrows that come along with it, you know, you know, I ran kind of on this idea of like, oh, I'm a local TV newscaster, I just care about this community and I want to give back. And everybody kind of liked me as a TV newscaster. And then you put your name on a, on a ballot. And you quickly get to understand that, you know, there's a level of scrutiny uh, in running for office that doesn't come with really any other profession. And as well, a result, I, I, I say I went other profession. I always say that people expect more out of their uh, elected officials and pastors than they do of themselves. No, I agree. That's a good that's I agree with that 100 percent. So anyway, I think uh, I'll never do it again. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I th <laughs> I think that what it taught me 
and I think I, I take this into every day now that I, because what I learned is that I think my best role is this side of it, covering politics uh, and kind of calling balls and strikes and, and, and being as, as objective as I possibly can. But it gave me a very special understanding of the rigors that these people uh, put themselves in for public service. And I take that into my reporting on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I worked in Albany for a little bit after that, uh, worked in as a bureaucrat in, in government for a little bit after I got my master's degree, and then uh, moved to Richmond, Virginia in 2007, uh, which was a perfect time to run, to, to move to that state because it was a swing state, uh, covered uh, Barack Obama winning uh, there, uh, which was a historical a win in Virginia at that time in 2008. Uh, it was a great place to be. Eric Cantor was the congressman from Richmond. <laughs> oh, uh, a bygone yeah. era. We used yeah. to be a proper country. Right. Yeah. And what, what was amazing being at that perch in a swing state like Virginia and having Cantor as our congressman is that I got a ton of access to Barack Obama. You know, I interviewed him three times. I interviewed him in the White House. Uh, his aides were constantly blowing up my phone because they wanted the, the message that his uh, presidency and his administration were working on at that time to resonate in a place like Virginia because it was such an important part of their electoral strategy. So I always joke that I got way more access uh, to some of the most important people in politics as a swing state political reporter in a city like Richmond than I ever do now as a CNN correspondent. Well, let me ask you that. That, that kind of brings me to my next question, because if someone would have said that the, the uh, before the Biden administration, Biden-Harris administration took office, that they passed two multi-trillion dollar relief, relief bills and a bipartisan infrastructure bill. And depending on who you talk to, they may pass another uh, trillion dollar uh, yeah, Build Back Better package. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, then you would probably think if they did all of this, you would say that that would be a home run first year. But it doesn't feel like the administration is hitting runs despite significant legislative success. What's your reporting tell you on why it feels this way and that disconnect, something that you just talked about, about the messaging of Barack Obama versus what you see now? Yeah, I think it's such a great question. And I think it's really kind of the fundamental problem that Joe Biden's dealing with right now. And I think he set his own expectations that were beyond the expectations of, you know, any president in recent memory, at least realistic goals, because Donald Trump sent, put out all kinds of like really false promises that he never really intended on, on executing. Um, but, you know, what Joe Biden did was he said, hey, we're going to pass a, you know, a multi-trillion dollar COVID relief package. And we're going to do that with bipartisan support. We're going to do that within the first three months of our administration. Uh, that was remarkable unto itself. Then we're going to pass a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. And I think what's so vexing about that, he also did it with Republicans, but this is something that Republican and Democratic presidents going back to Ronald Reagan have tried to do yep. and have been fantastically unsuccessful. And he was able to accomplish it. But unfortunately for Biden, and this is a, 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 this is a problem of his own making, he also tied it to this much broader social safety net uh, expansion uh, which I think was a key part of him winning the election, especially winning over those Bernie Sanders voters that I covered for a year and a half. And so because he set these lofty expectations and because he learned the lessons of the Obama presidency, where after they got the Affordable Care Act done and then lost control of the House of Representatives, it was really difficult for them to get anything significant accomplished in those remaining six years of their administration. You know, we've all come to expect that anything other than accomplishing all three of those goals is going to be viewed as a failure. And so uh, I think that in, unto itself, each one of those legislative packages are enormous successes for the Biden administration. 
but we're viewing his success on a different platform. There's no other two ways about it. And I think that Democratic voters in particular, progressive voters especially, have come to expect more out of their elected leaders because they feel, especially after four years of Donald Trump, that they've been left behind. And they're also worried that if they lose power, they may never get it back again, or at least get it back in this form or fashion. So, uh, you know, the reality is he's, they have accomplished a lot. They're probably not getting enough credit for it. But the reality is it's still not enough. I still believe that he has to make some sort of specific progress in passing at least some version of this Build Back Better agenda, or not only are the Democrats going to be in trouble in 2022, but I think Biden's legacy is going to be in trouble as well. Well, I also, I mean, I don't think it's just Build Back Better. They have to do something on voting rights or something on criminal justice reform. I mean, one of the three, I mean, they have three targets. They have to do something on one of those three for them. And that's, you know, that's it. It's somewhat of a good problem, but it is a problem that they have to solve. But you just brought up something very interesting. So thinking about, I mean, I, I don't think Democrats are going to do well in 2022. I, I don't think we'll win the House. It's not just policy issues, but it's also redistricting. You know, we got uh, just demolished in 2010, 2011 in state houses. But what did Virginia, which you know a lot about in New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you combine that with the legislative process or the feeling and the mood of the country, what does that tell you about what to expect in 2022? And in the next year, is that enough time for any party, Democrat or Republican, to change course? So I think that what we are not focusing enough on uh, when it comes to politics is the impact that the pandemic is having on everyday voter perception. And so and I think to a certain extent, because we are not kind of grading with that weight behind it when we view these electoral results, of 2020 and 2021, that we're, we might be misperceiving voters' overall perceptions of Democrats and Republicans isolated, you know, the issues they care about, on and on and on. And I think Virginia is a perfect example of that. Living in Virginia, I live in Fairfax County, which is kind of ground zero for this fight over how to handle school reopenings and how to handle COVID restrictions and how that impacts the day-to-day lives uh, of uh, average Americans. And what Glenn Youngkin was able to do and what we may see Republican candidates uh, successfully do in many of these House races across the country is tap into that angst. People just don't, you know, like you and I were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. We don't know. We didn't know how we were going to have our holidays. We don't know how we're going to plan birthday parties. And so when you have that anxiety and voters have, for the most part, pretty short term memories, they they go into that voting booth concerned about the things that they're concerned about in their daily lives at that moment. And if you're able to tap into that anxiety with, you know, in many respects, kind of a vague promise that you're going to make things better, I think that that can be a pretty effective tool in driving voters to the polls. And so what Glenn Youngkin was able to do was kind of mask all this wide litany of issues that uh, that parents in particular had about the way schools were conducting business, whether it be, you know, whether or not my kid has to wear a mask in school all day, whether or not they're forced to take a vaccine whether or not they're forced to learn about the true history of the United States of America, whether or not you know, they're dealing with sexual harassment or sexual assault cases within the schools properly. You know, he, it was almost his version of make America great again, right? Which was, you know, we're gonna fix the problems in your schools. Well, what are the problems? Well, you tell me what you're upset about and that's what we're gonna fix. And so I think that that's gonna be a Republican messaging strategy going into 2022 
that, that Democrats are going to be forced to deal with because they're the party in power. Well, you're upset about a lot of things in your life, inflation, restrictions, and uh, uh, having to do with uh, COVID, vaccine mandates, yada, yada, yada. We're going to fix all of that. We're just going to make it better. And we can do that. And we can promise you that we're going to do that because we're not the party in power. And to your second part of that question, is there enough time for Democrats to turn that messaging around? I mean, I, I think it's going to be very difficult, especially because we thought this pandemic was going to be over in the summer of 2020, you know, initially when it all started. And here we yeah, are. I mean, I, I was like March. OK, I was making plans for April. Right, You're right. Exactly. We thought there were going to be full football stadiums, uh, you know, in the in the fall of 2020. And th they were all completely empty. So here we are going into the new year in 2022. And we're still dealing with lockdowns and masks and not enough people getting the vaccine. The idea that this is somehow going to be hunky dory by the by November and that Democrats are not going to have to deal with the outcome of that, especially when you have, you know, President Biden saying that they were going to eradicate the virus, that we're going to make everything all better. That's all easy messaging for Republicans. And then to to that, you know, to the, the backside of this, Bakari, that's where you can kind of, you know, mask some of this more insidious politics that Donald Trump has been so successful at. And, you know, this is how you, you you wiggle in things like critical race theory and wiggle in things like voter suppression that, you know, you, you, you start with the anxiety around the pandemic and just uncertainty. And then you kind of play off of that to kind of drum up even more support uh, for people that, uh, you know, frankly, have been misinformed about what's really going on in the country. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear. Especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Well, let's talk about Build Back Better briefly. I know we're already at, man, we're already at the 20 minute mark. That's That means you're having fun. <laughs> it's because I talk uh, a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what you're actually good on the other side of this. Talk about the outside role of Joe Manchin. I mean, did anybody, could anybody ever predict that Joe Manchin would be this influential? What the hell is Joe Manchin doing? You know, maybe, you know, you, you talk to his colleagues on a daily basis. What do they say both on, and I don't want you to divulge off the record, but what's the feeling about Joe Manchin up there? I mean, and to a lesser extent, I guess, Kirsten Cinema. 
Um, because if we talk about voting rights, if we talk about all these other things, it's it's going to go through Joe Manchin. First of all, cinema surprised me. I didn't I didn't know what she was going to be. I didn't really know that much about her until I got this job. You know, her her track record, her background suggests that she would be a far more progressive senator than she's turned out to be. I mean, she was a member of the Green Party at one point in her career. So her uh, her role in all of this has been pretty unpredictable. That's something that I think none of us saw coming. I think what we see playing out with Joe Manchin was entirely predictable. I mean, I think a lot of us joked, you know, when it became a 50-50 Senate, we were starting to call him the prime minister because we knew that he was going to be the person that everything ran through because he's always been that middle of the road, more pragmatist than he was an ideologue. Um, and I understand that Democrats are super frustrated with him. And uh, particularly if you're a progressive Democrat and you saw the promise, you know, especially when Bernie was out there saying they were going to pass a $6 trillion uh, social safety net expansion, and you saw that excitement, I can understand why uh, Democrats are frustrated by that. But I also think that you are not looking at Joe Manchin's track record. He is who he said he was. <laughs> you know, he's always been this guy. And I don't necessarily think, you know, I, I've seen this scuttle and kind of resistance Twitter and things like that, where they, let's get Manchin out, let's primary him. I don't know what your alternative is. Uh, I think any other senator that comes from West Virginia, first of all, probably is not going to have a D behind their name. And not, secondly, you, don't, you don't have to, you don't have to like <laughs> vacillate. It's not a probably, it will not have a D. Right, exactly. Name. So I, you know, I think it's a problem. I think it definitely is a problem for you. If you're talking about filibuster reform, if you're talking about voting rights, if you're talking about any kind of serious climate reform action, but it's also your only vehicle, I think, to getting things like the child tax credit extended. It's your only vehicle to getting uh, aspects of Medicare expanded. It's your only vehicle uh, to doing a lot of these kind of big ticket social safety net expansions that the Democrats want. I think what Democrats are going to be forced to do here, and you already see this kind of messaging shift starting, you know, Ben Cardin was saying this a lot this week, is they're going to have to find that sweet spot. The things that Joe Manchin is willing to do, I mean, he's expressed some level of support for a, Joe, a, a John Lewis Voting Rights Act update. You know, is there is there some common ground that can be reached there? Um, but you're not going to do it by just attacking him and, uh, you know, disparaging him. He holds the cards right now. And I do think there's a, a place he's willing to go if you're willing to go there with him. You just got to find a way to, to get there. And I think that's the job of Chuck Schumer and, and some of these leaders in the Democratic Party. Joe Biden yeah. being the other one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I blame all this on Kyle Cunningham. Kyle Cunningham doesn't send text messages. Then Joe Manchin doesn't matter. You got 50 votes in the Senate then. But my last question for you is, is similar along these lines with Joe Manchin. My brother Charlemagne, the guy, will play that clip. Just got in, you know, asked that. He asked a better question than anybody on the Hill. No, he, he <laughs> asked about, he asked about uh, Joe Manchin to... Uh, Madam Vice President, a good friend of mine, tell me, um, she's been doing a, a good bit of interviews, uh, Face the Nation um, recently, um, been doing a lot of sit downs. Uh, tell me what the feel is on the Hill um, for the role that she's been playing and how she's viewed by her colleagues. You know, for me, I want to see her out more. I wish, you know, she was dialing in the black radio more weekly. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I've I've made my feelings known about the portfolio, but I just want her to succeed because I feel like she's one of the more talented people in our party. But what does it say about what what do her colleagues or former colleagues on the Hill say about her role and what they're saying about her today? I mean, in general, she's liked, right? I think most Democrats appreciate her, understand that she uh, is a force for good in the Democratic Party, as you point out, is immensely talented, and there's a big role for her to play going forward. 
I think that she's pigeonholed by two things. The first being that being vice president is just a, a difficult job. Uh, there, it doesn't have a specific set of responsibilities other than coming in and breaking ties in the Senate from time to time, which you know she has done and done effectively. Um, you know, you don't want to outshine the president uh, because that's not your role as vice president, and it's hard to do. So you're somewhat limited by what the president allows you to do in that space, and it's easy just to you know attack, right? You know, if you want to blame. You know, you, you notice that Republicans don't spend, I mean, they spend a lot of time attacking Joe Biden. I shouldn't say that, but she's an easy target because it's not, it's hard for her to really affect policy in a big way because she's not the president. She's uh, the vice president. But I do think the other thing that she's up against is that, and I don't think a lot of people talk about this, is that the Democratic, future Democratic presidential primary, in my feeling, getting talking to Democratic operatives and, and, and people up here, is open. Right. If for some reason Joe Biden decides not to run again in 2024, which all you know signals point to that he will, but if for some reason he decides not to run, there's not going to be this anointing of Kamala Harris as the next nominee for the Democratic Party. If there's going to be an open primary, and you're going to see a lot of the names that we saw in 2016 throw their hat into the ring again. You're going to see new names that. Uh, perhaps uh, thought about running in 2016 and didn't run run this time. She's not going to just be handed the nomination if Biden decides not to run. And as a result, I think that's why you see Democrats maybe not willing to lift her up in the way that they would if she were the clear heir apparent. Uh, there are a lot of ambitious people in the Democratic Party, as you know, Bakari. And and so I don't. They're not. You know, it's not as though some of these future Democratic opponents are attacking her or disparaging her behind the scenes. I don't want to give you that impression at all, but I'm just saying that I, I get a sense that there's not necessarily that willingness to go out and, and go to bat for her because a lot of these folks have their own ambition and you know they aren't exactly sure what Joe Biden's going to do in 2024 and they want to make sure all options are available to them. If that does that make sense in my Yeah, no, no. Sense? I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a, a free for all. We we know that. Although she is winning in every poll and beating everybody not named Michelle Obama if Joe Biden doesn't run again. Oh, she's uh, a, no, and to be clear, I she is the front runner. I don't I you know, if for some reason Biden doesn't run and I in my sense is and I do believe that Biden will run for election if I were to predict it. Um, you know, barring some sort of major health problem. But I'm just saying that I, I think that's part of the reason that you see her having tough footing because, and also being the front runner, right? Being ahead in all those polls, that's going to prevent people from really, you know, they don't want to continue to give her a lift up if it's a, if a job that they're eyeing as well. Well, Ryan, I want to say thank you for joining me on the Bakari Sellers podcast, the last episode of the year. Thank you for taking some time out uh, with me today. Uh, to everybody who's listening, have a happy new year to Ryan. Please kiss all the babies. Um, you, you kiss yours as well. How old are they uh, now? They'll be three in January, January seventh. Wow. Yeah, time flies. You're the pick of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my brother. Be easy, man. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Bakari.